0: To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out JoinColossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.
1: Today's Breakdown has been at the top of our to-do list since the show started. There are few brands as strong as this one and the way the Dumas family has nurtured it over the last six generations is remarkable. We are, of course, talking about one of the ultimate status symbols, Hermes. What began as a specialty saddles business in the mid-1850s has become famous for iconic handbags and other luxury items. Last year, the business earned $9 billion at 70% gross margins. It does things differently, and to explore the details behind its difference, I'm joined by longtime shareholder Mark Urquhart. Mark is a partner at Bally Gifford and head of their long-term global growth team, which he co-founded in 2003. Hermes was in the original portfolio when it launched in 2004 and has been held there since. Please enjoy this breakdown of Hermes. So, Mark, this is going to be such a fun conversation, and I was toying with where to begin. And since I just this morning learned really what a Birkin bag is with some astonishment, maybe you can start there. Can you explain this iconic product? I think it's a nice... Way to begin a conversation about such a storied and incredible brand. Sure. Thanks for
0: having me. I guess with Hermes, there's these two Uber bags, the Birkin and the Kelly. They both have similar, if slightly different, histories. So the Kelly actually predated Grace Kelly using it by about 20 years. I think it was called the Saka de Poche in the late 1930s. But she was famously pictured holding it. think in 1956. Uh, The apocryphal story I don't know is that it was to hide her being pregnant and it's quite a substantial bag and at a time when I guess the paparazzi and the press were everything. She was obviously a huge icon of her time and glamorous and was pictured with it and so it became eponymously known as the Kelly since then and then similar genesis with the Birkin where Jane Birkin, where it comes from. Again, a huge Hollywood star of her name. And she became associated as one of the first users of that bag. And they both kind of lasted. We're now talking multiple decades, which is astonishing, really. The Birkin is actually slightly more expensive off the shelf. Now, they're both hugely expensive bags. But interestingly, the Kelly, I was doing a little bit of playing around just looking at the resale values, quite often the Kellys have substantially higher resale value, which is a bit of an interesting quirk. The important thing is you get multiple colors, multiple materials, but stylistically, they are exactly the same. So they haven't altered, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but lots of luxury companies play around with their designs, do do different things to try to keep the lineup up fresh. But these things, if
1: you put a vintage one side by side with one, bought this year, you would know that they're the same bag. Just to really hit the point home, how much do they sell for new? And say a bit about resale values as well. So the Birkin, the cheapest
0: Birkin you could get is about eight and a half thousand US dollars. They go up massively from there. It depends on the skin and the complexity of the manufacture. Very rare crocodile might sell for into six figures and They're too discreet to sort of publicize what these sell for. Kelly, a little bit less than that. You might get an entry level Kelly for six and a half, seven thousand. Resale value, it really depends on many factors, actually. So, year can be quite important, a bit like vintage cars, I guess, which is somewhat counterintuitive when you think they're the same all the time. But it seems to be on if there's been particular celebrities associated with that year. Then you get some very classic colors, so the kind of tans or the blacks. Obviously, some people go for that. Some people will go for much more exotic colors. So there's been, I'll get some of the modern cultural references wrong, but the kind of car Bs and Beyoncés and others who have been seen with them, they'll go for much more lurid, bright colors. So the resale values can be triple, quadruple, so up into the 25, 30,000s. So these are... Incredibly expensive. <laughs> Incredibly expensive and also investment pieces, which
1: is interesting in itself when you're purchasing an article. We're going to talk a lot today about both product and distribution, because in luxury, both categories are almost as interesting. I mean, obviously, the product probably gets most of the attention, but the distribution is totally fascinating. And it's a big part about what makes the business. Maybe just as a teaser of the distribution... Why, when I went online this morning to look at one of these things, could I not see one on their website? And the only thing I could see when I went to the bag section was straps for the bags. That's the only (laughs) thing I was able to buy online. Why is that? They don't have a complex algorithm that's stopping you buying one.
0: These are an experience. Unlike quite a lot of the rest of the industry, which especially during COVID and even pre-COVID has started to move online, Hermes is very much an experiential... You come to the shop, it's a real ceremony to get these bags. Obviously, I'm sure we'll delve into the the waiting list and the actual process of becoming a bag owner. Online for Hermes is about the size of one of their substantial shops. It's low single digits in terms of revenue. So really, what they're doing online, they'll sell some man bags because basically, we're not that interesting to them. You can get a couple of nice ties. There'll be some silk scarves. They use it really as another shop front, but they're at the extreme end of the industry in resisting that move to online. And for them, it's because they want this to be the French would say recherché, almost sort of hard to access, hard to get. A big part of acquiring this bag is having your appointment in Rue Faubourg, which is the flagship store in Paris, or in Bond Street, or Madison Avenue. You know, choose your location. It's not just a pop-in and here's your bag, Patrick, you're good to go. It'll be an hour and a half. It will be champagne or it will be tea and cake. And it's the unveiling and the unwrapping. It's a really important part of their brand management that you can't just pop on and order one
1: for Christmas. Give us a sense for the scale of this business. Obviously, they're incredibly famous for these bags, but they have products in lots of different categories. They've sort of interesting structure in that the family is a key part of the story. We're going to get into the whole story in just a minute here, but maybe you could just level set for the audience, the scope and scale of the business itself today in 2022. So the last year, they did just shy of 9 billion euros of
0: revenue. We've owned it for around 20 years. When we first bought it back in the early 2000s, that was about 1.2, 1.3 billion. So a substantial growth, about 50% of the businesses leather goods, a huge part of the profitability. Like a lot of luxury companies, they have a ready-to-wear business, the sort of extreme fashion that means nothing to my sort of untrained Scottish eye, but as an interesting part of the brand, that's about 20%. Actually, interestingly, historically, silks through a period, and part of what interests me so much about Hermès is how it has pivoted several times through its history. So in the 20s, 30s, silks were the mainstay of the business and it's also famous. I wouldn't say as famous for its scarves, but very well known. And you meet particularly French women of a certain age and they will almost undoubtedly be wearing a Hermes scarf. It's just part of the uniform. Um, That's another 15, 20% of the business. And then there's the usual entry-level stuff, perfumes, trying to get people into the brand that's about 5 6% of the business. The majority or half is leather goods, and then the rest
1: is made up of those other elements. What about some of the basics around the margin structure of the business? Typically, luxury has very high margins. What does that look like for Hermes and anything interesting relative to other luxury companies that you would point out about the financials, let's call it? That to me is a huge fan of this company. It's why I've owned it for so long,
0: but a lot of it is based on the margin structure. So Operating margins last year, 40%. If you looked at this business and didn't know what it did, it looks like a software business it has sort of 70% gross margins, 40% operating margins. You would not think that this is a manufacturing business. It's got no right to kind of earn those margins. That ties back into where we started, that they are able to command this premium pricing on these bags, but not just on the bags, throughout the categories. So, if you look at a Hermes tie, which is very nice, I've treated myself to a couple over the years. It's sort of hard for a Scotsman to stomach the luxury price tags, but you know, every 10 years or so, I kind of break and buy one. They're nice ties, don't get me wrong, but they're silk ties. I could easily buy one at a fifth of the price, but there's something about having it's that intangible Hermes. So, throughout the categories, they're really profitable. They're very careful about how they reinvest. So one of the features, that didn't answer your question on the family ownership, they would describe themselves as stewards of the business. They are passing this business on. We're on the sixth generation now from the 1830s of family involvement. It's well over half of the shares are privately owned. I think there's something like 23, 24 different sections of the family and they're very careful about that allocation. Unlike other luxury brands, they haven't really been involved in the m and game at all. They've got one or two suppliers of raw materials, but it's mono brand. There's no sort of second act to Hermes. They're extremely good stewards of capital. The debate we've had internally over the years is, are these margins sustainable? Why can't someone else come in at a 10% discount with as good a bag
1: and compete that away and That to me is the beauty of the business that you just can't. Luxury is so interesting because it's so confounding as a business. It's almost an embarrassment of things that we have to talk about today. We will get to all of them. But before we do get into some of the details, I think it's probably appropriate to ask this question earlier than I normally would, which is around defensibility. If you think about some of the business school ideas for Competitive advantage, or you think about something like competitive advantage, period, let's say for a software business. What you find is that even the very best companies, for the most part, have some period of time during which they earn abnormally high returns and it sort of gets competed away, even in the presence of modes. We're talking right after Chat GPT came out and everyone is now saying, oh, Google's in trouble, even though Google seemed to have the greatest business mode of all time. Talk about why something like Hermes is like the ultimate in your mind in defensibility of a business that can potentially sustain those incredibly high operating margins? I think you've hit the nail firmly on the head that that's the nub
0: of the investment case. It makes no rational sense. I think that's really important. And people have tried hundreds of different strategies. They've tried to say, this is as good a bag. This leather is as good. It's made by similar artisans as make the Hermes bags. They've tried pricing above Hermes to almost give it that. Uber attraction. They've tried pricing at the same level. They've tried pricing just below. And that to me gets to the very defensibility to your question of the brand, that the fact that they have these two iconic handbags that simply can't be challenged. I've tried this many times over the years to female colleagues of different ages. If I gave you the option to buy any handbag, what would it be? I would say ninety percent plus will always say a Birkin or a Kelly, and that, in a nutshell, is what the competition are up against. So, economic theory suggests a business like this. There's no shortage of capital to come in, as you said. You know, there's huge margin structure to attack, and rationally, it should sort of flood in. But they're not substitutes. They are substitutes in the sense that a handbag is something you put all your crap in. And judging from my wife, <laughs> it's functional. But it's way beyond functional. So there is something intrinsically special there. And to me, that's the heritage, it's the craftsmanship, it's the image, it's the fact that they themselves are so careful about how they grow this, and there's no sort of glut of supply. Because the other thing that a lot of companies would do would say, oh my goodness, we've got such demand here, we can change our production process a little bit. Let's flood the market and maximize short-term revenues. That doesn't happen. So there's a whole myriad interaction of small competitive advantages that must frustrate the hell out of the competition, actually. We speak a lot to different luxury companies. We own shares in Kering as well, which obviously has Gucci, which is reasonably high-end, but it's kind of different. Chanel might be the Closest competitor, it's obviously privately owned, so it's harder to get a read on them. But Chanel has an absolutely fabulous brand, but it's not Hermes, and they're not quite competing. So it's really, intellectually, it's fascinating why there isn't those threats to the durability. One that we might come back to is ultimate size. How big can a luxury brand
1: get? And I've got quite a lot of thoughts on that. Well, yeah, maybe just go there now because there was an example that I read in preparation that I can't remember what the name of the product was, but there was some product that was selling too well and they just completely discontinued it. Maybe talk a bit about the metered growth and ultimate size that you just mentioned of what this could become. Because when you think about it with your investment hat on, if it could stay at 40% margins, you'd love that 9 billion to become 90 billion. Talk about the potential growth, ultimate market size, all your thoughts there with any examples that you think are relevant. Back when we were first
0: investing in luxury brands 20 years ago, as a strategy I set up, at that stage, out in the far distance, was this 10 billion figure. There was no brand that was there yet. Now there are several near that category. As I said, Herbes is about a billion below that. LV, the actual Louis Vuitton part of LVMH. Chanel, the best estimates are somewhere around there. The question is is there a trade off between? growth, and it's nowhere near ubiquitous. Overall, Hermes is about 4% of the luxury market. Depends, obviously, how you define it. Maybe close to double digits of the leather part of that. But there is this worry that, well, hang on a minute. If everyone has one of these things, surely you lose the exclusivity that is part of the cachet. The interesting counter example to that is Louis Vuitton in Japan, which is a podcast in itself, probably for someone else to talk to you about. But there's something like 40 million Louis Vuitton handbags in Japan. And many of those are just the one that, as soon as I say it, you'll think of the initials, the monograph, the LV on the brown bag. And you go onto a Tokyo subway and everyone's got one. But that's okay. Everyone wants one. Now, I don't think Hermes will ever get there. And it's quite interesting. You have to know that it's a Hermes bag. One of the things that is interesting about it is it's not particularly monogrammed. It's not very flashy. It's You have to know to know, sort of thing. And the other thing that's happened in the market is go back 20 years, the luxury markets, and this is something most management teams across the industry will talk about, has changed quite radically. Obviously, there's been huge growth of China. Again, I'm sure we'll come back to that and debate where that might go. There's been cycles within that, obviously, based on the Communist Party clampdown. But generally, that's been a massive thing. But interestingly, the Middle East, topically at the moment, obviously Qatar hosting the World Cup, but anyone who travels through the Middle East, through Qatar, through Dubai, the UAE, and increasingly actually Saudi Arabia, those are big markets. There is a lot of, obviously, wealth in those regions and people who want to display some of that in this very high-end way. But then finally, the really interesting one is actually the US market. The US has been a bit of a anomaly in the luxury market. There's been some quite strong growth on the East and West Coast, but in the flyover states, less so. And luxury was sold in quite a funny way through the Neiman Marcuses and the Saks of the world and the concession. So it actually comes back to one of the topics you raised earlier in terms of distribution, but you're starting to see standalone stores coming more commonly in the US, more connection directly with the brands. So it's not just the China story. you. Know, jumping companies slightly, but Monsieur Pinot at Kering has talked about having all these different legs of growth in the luxury market. His father founded the business and passed it on to him. And back then it was probably East Coast, US, capital cities of Europe and Japan 20 years ago. Now there's a lot more markets. So putting that all together, I think this can get to my time period is 10 years plus in terms of how I invest. I see no reason why it can't at least double sales from here and sort of carry on. And one of the attractions is that it has that intrinsic growth. Coming back to the second part of that, about how they control the brand, the story you're referring to is one of my favorites on Hermes, which is they had a hip beach bag on their hands. This is going back 15 years or so ago. And it was, again, led by Tokyo. It was just sort of one of these canvas bags. Being Hermes, it wasn't just a canvas bag. It was like $150 or something. And flying off the shelves in Japan, 99.9% of management teams when they saw that, the reaction is... Double down, get more bags. (laughs) Double down, get more bags. Where can we source these? Let's get these out. Let's exploit this. Exactly the opposite to Hermes. They were like, this is not what we want. We need to take this stock off the shelves. Let's destroy it. We don't even want to discount this. This is not what we are about. We are not about having ubiquity and having that faddishness to it. We are classics. I think the great part of the story is that the CEO was telling me about this, Patrick Thomas, who was the predecessor of Axel Dumas. I remember at the end of the story, he sort of said, oh, and of course, we then went to the board and reported this. And you might think, you know, some boards, of well, that's, that's irrational what are you doing? And the board just gave them a standing ovation, just sort of (laughs) said, yeah, yeah, well done, guys. That's the right decision.
1: To me, that gets to the real DNA of the company, how they think about the brand. Yeah, maybe it's the right time then to talk about a word you mentioned earlier, which is heritage. It seems like one of the things that's hardest to disrupt in some of these luxury brands is literally just time that if properly managed, and we'll talk about how they manage the family and the company manage the brand, And the consistency and the evolution through time. But it's impossible to substitute that this was started in the early 1800s. And while there are some examples like Brunello Cucinelli or something of high-end luxury brands that are more recent, many of them are very, very old. And there's something to the timelessness and the history and the heritage that lights people's brains on fire for whatever reason. Like you said, not necessarily rational in terms of its utility, but I think it's really important for you to dive in to Hermes's history, which all started with a horse. That to me,
0: if you were to really break it down and say, what can't be replicated here? It's that. The story was it started as a saddle maker back in the 1830s. Horses were one of the main ways to get around and made exquisite saddlery and had a high end reputation, even from the very beginning, which I think is important. As the century dawned, the rise of the automobile. They were faced with quite a large existential threat, and saddles became less functional and more of a pastime, so it carried on in a smaller way. So that's where they started to use some of the skills that have been acquired. And importantly, it's always been French artisans who have made these goods. That's another strategic choice which they take and is very different. So you have approaching 200 years of heritage, and every time they communicate the emblem of Hermes is that equestrian heritage. Their press releases are quite unique in the sense that almost talking about the short term is vulgar. When they report quarterly results, there's always a long-term tone to them and it just seeps through the business. I would 100% agree with you that there are some newer brands that look really interesting, but they've not yet stood the test of time with Cuccinelli. In the next 10, 20 years, we'll, we'll have a leadership change there. And that will be quite interesting because it's obviously built around the eponymous founder there. Several years ago, I was sort of challenging myself. So I did look at some of the newer brands. At that time, Michael Kors was lighting things up. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do a research process on Michael Kors. It just didn't compare. It did a decent job with the kind of entry-level bags. But you could almost tell it was just that firework brand based around his personality, his TV shows, and it just had a very, very different feel and a different vibe to it. I think it's been hard over the years. There's been several, several efforts. There's been Coach, obviously, on your side of the pond. There's been Todd's in Europe. And the other things it gives us a playbook that you can go back and go back to the library. So that's something we've seen a little in Gucci more recently, which going slightly off topic on Hermes, but hopefully it's interesting. Gucci is, to me, one of the ultimate indestructible brands. You've had murder, you've had divorces, it's the Italian stereotype, it's like the godfather of the leather industry. And then Alessandro Michele came in a few years ago, he's recently announced that he's leaving. He just basically went back through the back catalogue and said, we've got these symbols that are Gucci history, we could use them again. and I love that about these brands that they have a competitive advantage that even through capital, you can't replicate. As you said, it's time, it's heritage. I think there's something about them being European. There's that kind of real specialness about the French and Italian brands. I did the Japanese market for several years, and it always interested me that Japan, you would say that Japan almost has the ultimate cultural backdrop of extreme craftsmanship and attention to detail and why haven't they been able to create? Surely there must be a story of someone on the far side of Mount Fuji who's been making goods for (laughs) 200 years. And some of the oldest companies in the world are Japanese. Some of the oldest companies, but they haven't. And likewise, China, there's no evidence that China is producing. Why? What's your explanation for this? I've thought about it long and hard. It seems to be there is something about buying European heritage. So there's something about that Parisian or the Milanese. And part of it is, as anyone has visited those streets, there are these extremely beautiful streets and old buildings with wonderful shop fronts, and they just feel luxurious. It's almost that you're choosing to buy part of that history by owning this item. You're part of this long lineage, which is, again, seems slightly irrational. (laughs) But that's the kind of beauty
1: of it. No one can see us on Zoom. We've got two poorly dressed, unfashionable dudes talking about this. Maybe the wrong pair to be figuring this out. It still raises the question for me of what to you luxury is and means, because it's like one of these words, like you kind of know what it means. But I like the way you just described it, that what you're buying here. Is not the utility of the bag, but a piece of history or a piece of a vibe. I'm curious how deep you've gone into the consumer psychology here. When someone buys one of these bags or a luxury good in general, what is the job being done? Is it about signaling? Is it about signaling wealth? How do you think about the motivation behind these purchases, which show up as 40% operating margins? Like, obviously, something there is unique that's going on. It's a big question, but like to you, just big picture, what is luxury? Like, Why is this such a thing? Yeah, it's something we've tried to understand over 20 years. If you go back to the
0: derivation of the word luxury, it comes from the Latin luxe, L-U-X-E. And in Roman times, even, a predating Roman, really, in Greek society, in Egyptian society, of what we know, there was always a desire, I think the best phrase is, to sort of show off That whole idea of luxuriating is saying, yeah, I've got some status here. I'm part of this club. It's not always in a flashy way. And I think that's quite important. I think they would be much less good businesses if this was only about bling. There's definitely an element of that. And you know, one of the interesting areas is how luxury has become very associated with some of the rap scene and some of the music scenes. But for me, luxury is about combination of those who have made some wealth and want to enjoy it. There's never a real reason to buy a Porsche or a Ferrari, but people do it. They really enjoy it. There's something about the badge. There's something about being inside one of those vehicles that makes the driver feel good. I think there's an aspirational element. So this is where they will talk about having customers over multiple years. It's okay for people, you know, I was self-deprecating myself earlier about the ties. It's okay to start with a scarf, and with a tie and move up through the brand over the years. I think ultimately it's about being part of a club. And let's not forget, these are extremely nice items. They are beautifully made. The Hermes ones are all hand finished. A real appreciation of the finery of the artisanship in terms of They only use the best leather. There's a whole host of inputs that go in to make them them nice items. The thing that we've struggled with over the years to challenge yourself is there's absolutely no economic reason for anyone to buy a luxury good. These are all nice to have items. They're not necessities. They're not in the hierarchy of needs. They're up at (laughs) (laughs) self-actualization. Yeah, yeah. But... What's been interesting is it seems to be a global phenomenon. This is, as I said earlier, the geographic spread, and it's the same brands that are doing it. So to me, that suggests you can start to get into the philosophical stuff. But there's some sort of sense of belonging there of, I want to be part of this. Now, some of the challenge I get from younger colleagues would be, I'm in my 50s now. I'm actually quite slender, but they'd say, you know, you're fat and you're old and you're kind of, <laughs> um, you don't get of. Our taste in brands are changing, and we'll probably get into some of the ESG considerations. But I disagree with them. I think there's a lot of evidence that actually young people are really interested in these brands as well, which is interesting, I think. And there's been some more than others are collaborating in interesting ways and doing stuff around the fringes. Hermes is a bit less so, actually, which tells you something about their core customer is definitely older. But they're very patient and waiting for people to sort of arrive at Hermes. There's not a definitive answer, I think, and Luxury, will mean different things to different people. I think it's that combination of wanting nice things,
1: but beyond that, wanting to be part of something bigger than oneself. I think it's so interesting that in this case, the highest-end brand doesn't have too much of a logo on it, that you have to know to know, as you said, which... I think brings us to like the artisanship itself, which you referred to a few times. I remember one of my favorite things about the episode we did on Rolex was learning about the maniacal, insane degrees that Rolex would go to, to make the product better all the way down to owning metal foundries themselves, because they just weren't pleased with the foundries that they were working with as suppliers. So tell us the story of this part of the business, the artisan, what the constraints are, what the business looks like in terms of how vertically integrated it is to the extent that it is everything you could shed light on about how these things actually get made. It is a manufacturing business after all. Talk us through this because obviously that's the key thing that fuels the product itself that people are buying.
0: It's a really interesting model that they don't offshore at all. So it's all made in French ateliers. And the two constraints are how quickly they could recruit. They are looking for very skilled artisans. They estimate that from opening a new studio or production facility, it's about two years of training to get someone up and running. They're relatively small. So they've looked out to 2024, and they will add, this was from last year from a conversation, they will add four or five over those three years. That equates to allowing them to grow volumes at around 10%. It's really different. It's a real choice. Most of the other companies outsource at least part of it. And They're actually quite quiet about it because they don't want you to know, obviously, that the expensive handbag is being made somewhere off a beach in Vietnam, yet you're paying a couple of grand for it. They will say, oh, but it's put together in Italy, and Bottega Veneta, which is another carrying brand, that's all made in Italy. But it's an extremely important part of the Hermes story that it's that quality. Then the other side of the supply side is obviously sourcing the leather itself, that's something as an investor, it's harder to get a handle on. We obviously speak to a lot of the companies, but one thing we did several years ago, we have a couple of like investigative researchers, we call them, who we just send off to look at companies from different angles. And we had one of the women, we just asked her to go and explore the leather market. She thought it was the best brief she'd ever had. She was like, really? You're going to pay me to, to go to <laughs> handbag conferences? And what she came back with was really interesting that she said in the leather sourcing. So she went to some tanning and leather conference somewhere in the middle of Italy and came back independently to us and said, yeah, the Hermes guys, they will just pay top dollar for the best leather. There's no questions asked. So it has to be a really contiguous part with no staining, with no blemishes on it and of a size because the bag is made from one contiguous piece of leather. It's not stitched together from different panels, which if you start to think about some different handbags, you'll think, oh, yeah, there's the underside and then there's two sides. That's one of the signatures of the Hermes process. I thought that was quite interesting corroboration. Like many of them, they're thinking about the supply chain of leather, the conditions. They've had a couple of incidents over the years. There was a video went viral from an Australian crocodile farm this year. They're cognizant of that. They're also looking at some different materials beyond leather. They won't lead the market in that, but they are starting so there's a big science around mushroom leather and sort of different materials, some of which mimics it. But I think they will give consumer choices. Obviously, some people think leather goods just shouldn't be manufactured from a animal welfare point of view, some from an environmental point of view. Others would say actually if you're slaughtering the cows anyway to produce beef this is just a byproduct, and it should be used. And so actually it gets into quite a complicated debate on that. But yeah, they're very specific about French production, French artisanship, definitely quite snobby. The the French guys are the best at making these bags, but they would say, well, look over the years, look at all the competition. They haven't come close to our quality and these are the best bags. So we will invest heavily in training these people and then, I think another feature that is interesting is people stay there for decades. So the turnover of staff is extremely low. Once you are a
1: Hermes artisan, there's really nowhere else to go in the industry. Anything else in its history, I'm especially thinking about how consistent the brand has been, even some of like, as you pointed out at the beginning, the bags literally haven't changed. Anything else in its history that you think is especially important that we haven't covered, especially as it relates to like existential threats. Again, thinking about Rolex, when it moved from mechanical for it to be possible to have a quartz, you know, more digital watch, like it was an existential moment because all of a sudden it wasn't the most accurate timepiece. They couldn't hang their hat on that anymore. Anything else like that that you think is important to understand the history that Hermes has lived up until this point? I think it's almost what they have chosen not to do, if that makes sense.
0: They could have on several occasions... Really come down the price structure and that nine billion of euros. There's no doubt it could be substantially higher, but I would argue it would be lower quality. So it's they've taken these decisions not to sort of logoize the bags and they've taken the view, I think, that there will always be enough demand at the high end of the market that they don't need to dip down. I think they would say almost as dirtying their hands in the mass market, whereas a lot of other brands you get quite stuck there and you can get quite congested and you know, you get 50 or 100 euros on price points here. And it's really hard then to resist the call to cut prices somewhat to stimulate demand. Probably the biggest existential threats they face, I referenced, the end of Saddle Ray. If suddenly everything is virtual, you get virtual lipstick and virtual mobiles and we're all good. I don't know. People might still carry the handbag just to look good. The silk, there was a big sort of backlash stroke pricing at the end of the interwar period. And so silks actually came off quite substantially at that stage. So they have, at times, faced some quite large external threats. There's been a couple of times in the last couple of decades where the ready-to-wear business, I see it as a little bit of a table stakes, and they have to have it because you have to have these fashion shows in Paris and New York. It's not that it's a bad business. It's a decent business, but it's a little bit distracting, I think. And it's almost to say, okay, yeah, we're a proper fashion house. The interesting thing with Hermes is actually the designer, whereas at a lot of places, the designer is so key. At Hermes, they're much less high profile. And it's a lady that's been there since 2014. It's not a Tom Ford. It's not a, a reference to earlier, and he's just left Gucci after seven years. He wants to go on and create somewhere else. And that, to me, attests to the fact that actually there's not much change in the design underlying here. So it's not something you play around with. To me, that's a real attraction that there's... I know next year, pretty much what Hermes will be selling, whereas at other luxury companies, there might be a bit more experimental, which has its place. But one of the nice things is that it doesn't face those design risk. There's no design risk. Design risk,
1: yeah. And those existential moments, as you said. So that separates it out as well, I think. It's interesting that some of the other things have even technology risk with watches or something, that there's no technology risk, there's no design risk. The things are just very slow rates of change. And that brings us to the family. I'm so interested that it's the sixth generation. You mentioned there's like 25 different sections of the family that are shareholders. And obviously, I think like most people would think in business that a meritocracy that didn't have anything to do with what family you were born into would be a superior way to choose successive leaders of a business. And yet, there's so many examples of family-controlled businesses that last much longer than ones that aren't, where surely DNA randomization and recombination makes it so that the sixth generation effectively has no relationship to like the original family member. So talk me through everything you've learned about this. Like teach us about family stewardship and why Hermes has been such a, I guess maybe the best example in business of stewardship across generations, even though there's it's spread out so much now.
0: I've gleaned quite a lot over the years that you don't meet the family at all. They're very much in the background, other than those in the executive roles. But I think, in many ways, that tells you something about it. I remember the first time I met them. So when I was first interested in this area, I was looking at, obviously, lots of different companies in the area. And, of course, LV has Monsieur Ardo and just a very different vibe to how he runs the business. And, and it's been very successful, don't get me wrong, but that real acquisitive, quite publicity-seeking sort of behavior. So one of the things I think about the Hermes family is it just exists in the background as this extremely supportive and allows the company to take these long-term decisions. So you get the sense there's no pressure in the boardroom to grow faster. Let's grow in a sustainable, profitable, long-term way. And as I said earlier, one of the things I remember being told by the first CEO I met was, the family are looking 40 years down the road. The people who are in their 60s and 70s, this is the asset they want to pass to their grandchildren. And I've been 25 years of investment. I can't think of any other company that has described itself as that. Every company will tell you, yeah, we're really long-term, and here's our forecast for next quarter, in the next breath. These guys literally think in decades. And to me, I think getting through the first couple of iterations, because the other question, of course, at the back of your mind is, why don't these guys sell out? It's insane to have all their wealth tied up in this one asset. It's actually not insane because it's provided such good returns. You know, There's been little ructions or a couple of family members over the years who do want to liquidate, but it's, it's almost sort of mopped up by other family members. I've now got succession in my mind. Obviously, one of my Scottish heroes, Brian Cox. As the antithesis of the family business that Hermes is, any dirty linen is kept away from public view. So there's a real united front. A few years ago, LV, Monsieur Arnaud, was interested in trying to buy it. He was trying to flush out weaker family members. And LV took quite an aggressive, very public stake. And they just batted it off. He just didn't get anywhere. I think he got a high single digit proportion of the free floats. It was like, a sort of gallic shrug of the shoulders and is that the best you've got? There's no way, no
1: way you're gonna get us here. <laughs> World's richest man. Can't make it down.
0: Yeah. He's not used to losing M&A battles. He's had an extremely strong sort of MA
1: record over the years. How do you think they've done this? Obviously we don't know the answer, so I'm asking you to speculate a little bit because they're obviously very private. But is there anything you've gleaned that gives hints as to practices that are in the family or methods of communication or incentive structure. I mean, it's just incredibly resilient. That last example is perfect. How does this happen? I think from what I've gleaned is
0: there's no dominant shareholding. So unlike Cuccinelli, you talked about earlier, or obviously there's now a big debate around which of Monsieur Arno's offspring take over and there's a clear front runner now. From what I know and what you can see on some of the disclosed stakes, it's pretty flat. So I guess that's an advantage of having so many family members. Back in the day, in the 1800s and early 1900s, there would have been more dominant stakes, but they've, they've managed to get that. So even if you get an agitator and someone who might say, come on, guys, let's monetize, it's a big market cap now. There could be people that could transfer paper wealth into very strong actual wealth I don't know if there are structures behind the scenes which are almost disincentives to that in terms of financial loss. That might be something that is in there. We're not privy to that part of the share register. I guess it's just the case of this has worked for so long. I think there's a massive sense of pride of who wouldn't be proud of a business that is 185 years old, which has arguably the world's best brand as its primary asset. These will all be fabulously wealthy individuals. So there's no liquidity necessity. I do think the more generations you go through, the more solid it becomes, if that makes sense. You've also got that collective memory of this is okay. Don't want to be the one that breaks the chain. (laughs) Don't want to be the one that breaks the chain, but also this works, this transfer of wealth. And remember that
1: in France, there are high taxes on monetization of family businesses meaning if they were to sell. So they're making their money through dividends. Exactly. Dividends and share price appreciation. It is fascinating. You know, It probably, again, defies
0: some of the business school logic. And I love companies that defy business school logic. The other thing that always intrigues me, of course, and this is something I say to our younger investors is, you can look at the balance sheet of Hermes. It's a rock-solid balance sheet. There's lots of cash there, but it doesn't tell you anything about the business because they've never transacted. There's no goodwill. There's no intangible asset. And yet the whole business is this massive intangible asset of how much would you have to spend and how many years, as you said earlier, would you spend to recreate this? That's not unique to Hermes. You could say the same about Apple or hundreds of businesses which have been organically grown from that first idea. But it is
1: something that people who look purely at the financials of a business sometimes underappreciate. We haven't talked in much detail about the endpoints. You mentioned that it would be a champagne and caviar affair sitting down for an hour to buy one of these things, but talk a little bit more about literally where you can buy Hermes goods and anything interesting about their strategy of endpoint distribution or partnership with distributors. I would just really love to understand their thinking because with all this heritage, with all this constraint around how one can be produced, how many can be produced and so on, I'm sure that they care just as much about which stores get them, how they get them, how it's bought. What lessons can we learn here that might be interesting? It's almost a hundred
0: percent through their own stores. So they will have some concessions in department stores and cities where they don't want to invest the capital. But as I understand it, it's really hard. So the process of acquiring one of these, you become a customer of Hermès, and you might buy one of those entry level items. You might buy pair of shoes or a lower entry handbag, and then you go onto a waiting list. I think on average, it's probably about a year, a year and a half. And you kind of apply to become an owner of the handbag. It's not just, hey, um, I've got the dosh. I'm good to go. (laughs) It's not that simple. And effectively, they're screening you as a customer. And then they obviously have the flagship stores. They're not huge stores because they don't have a massive... SQU line, I think the average size, one of my analysts did an update last year, is about 525 square meters. So we reckon roughly their sales per square meter will be about €50,000, which is, oh as God. you can imagine, off the charts. Even Apple in its prime, in the Fifth Avenue store, there was nowhere near that. They've got stores in all the cities you would expect, but not absolutely huge numbers They've got mid-teens numbers in China, where some of the companies will have 200. So, you know, you go to any mall in China and they're there and Hermes will be present in the major ones. So they're quite deliberate about where they place. And then the, as ever, there is a sort of original store. So that's in Rue Faubourg in Paris. That's the kind of ultimate pilgrimage. It is a bigger store, more of the flagship variety. And I've been in there once. I was on a sort of investment trip and I was sort of looked on with quite a look of disdain as if something does not belong. (laughs) I sort of had a quick look around and I felt not intimidated. Out of place. Yeah, out of place. It's good to know your limits and I'm happy to invest,
1: but I'm not going to be one of their key customers in that store. I was just pulling up one of my favorite books. is a book called Luxury Strategy, just because it's so interesting. And so often the business strategy behind luxury companies is literally the opposite. And there's one chapter in there that's called the anti-laws of marketing. I'll read some off here. Do not pander to your customers' wishes. Keep non-enthusiasts out. Do not respond to rising demand. Dominate the client. I like that one. Make it difficult for clients to buy. I mean, you've mentioned all of these things. But one of them is really interesting. It literally says, do not sell. This is a pull, not push thing. So I'd love you to talk about marketing because well, maybe they don't want to sell directly and they actually make it hard to buy, which you've described. You still need people to know about the brand. One of the ideas from this book that I remember, though I don't have it in front of me, was something like, you want the ratio of people that know about a brand to those that can buy it to be as big as possible. And that's really marketing. So how has Hermes done marketing historically? What is its strategy? What have you learned from it? I've described them as pretty
0: discreet. So they're in Historically, there'll be the folks and the high-end fashion press. They do the fashion shows, as I said, but they never make the biggest splash. The interesting thing is we started off talking about the Kelly and the Birkin, but you'll never see massive New York or London Underground adverts with huge bags on the wall saying, buy me. They advertise in quite a subliminal way. It's almost quite a playful way. In recent years, they've used quite a lot of animation. We're just a kind of interesting brand, find out a bit more. But I do think they're in that class of companies. To your point, people just know about them. It's hard to pin down exactly why that is. They'll have their usual high-end polo matches, or I've skied a couple of times in Switzerland and San Maritz, which is, is pretty swanky for me. And You see lots of people wandering around in the literally ankle-length fur coats carrying a couple of Hermes bags. They have a thing called White Turf there, which is horse racing on ice, which is actually quite cool. It's kind of interesting. And that's the sort of thing they'll sponsor because it's just high-end. It's not blingy. It's not aggressive, in-your-face kind of advertising. It's a very average percentage of sales that they spend on it. The only brand I can think of that is similar, a completely different industry is Tesla that Tesla's never spent a dime on advertising, which is kind of insane when you actually think about it. Billions of people know about Tesla now, and good or bad, you know, different opinions. And I don't think Hermes has that ubiquity, but it has enough presence in enough consumers that it comes back to that. This is the ultimate. If you're going to own one bag, and lots of people own more than one bag, obviously, but if you forced most consumers to choose, they would choose a Hermes, And that, to me, gets the real essence of why it's special, because every one of their competitors would want to be in that position, and they'll advertise the hell out of it. But they can't. They can't replicate it for all the reasons we've discussed. There is this uniqueness and this unique positioning, which must drive the competitors insane, actually. I think, actually, they fall in two camps. We have some management meetings where they just accept that Hermes is on this different level. They're sort of competing. Just move on. (laughs) Yeah, they're the kind of Champions League soccer reference. They're playing up at this level. We're down in the Premier League. We're going to compete for that prize.
1: Others still do try to get up there, but can't do it. How would you attack the brand? Let's say I said to you, you can have any talent you want in the world. You can have $10 billion. Like, I want you to burn $10 billion. Any designer, any product category... If you wanted to assault Hermes heads-on, I guess it wouldn't be heads-on maybe to win, but what would you do? We sit around
0: our investment table and think, right, if I had the capital here, how would I compete? You would get some current timeless celebrity. So I, I don't know if so of British bias is that an Emma Watson or someone really cool. So to me, it's that sort of naming of the brand. I would then try and steal... They're artisans, that wouldn't work. I know for a fact because they'd be like, Mark, who? Who is this Scottish guy who's never designed a handbag? And I could try and cherry pick the best people across the industry, but I just don't think it would work. You could throw so much money, as you say, if money was no object and you could market the hell out of it, I'd probably try and go even higher in price than them. I think then people would say, well, that's ridiculous. I'll just buy a Birkin. So, I'd I'd probably flip-flop, I'd get discombobulated by how hard they were to compete with, and I would end up giving up, I think. I've never come across a company where I can't imagine the core competence being competed against. I think as an investor, you always have to ask yourself that question. Well, like many others, we've been debating companies like Facebook, Meta, Alibaba, companies that seem to have these amazing modes, And you mentioned it earlier, but actually, they've been competed away, or at least the growth rates are substantially lower now, and that's for a variety of reasons. But in Hermes, the thing that I think that could derail Hermes is just the overall market hits a wall. We saturate luxury, or there's a massive change in societal attitudes. That is a plausible threat. I think it's quite low likelihood, but it's obviously extremely high impact. I don't see it being derailed competitively. And
1: that to me feels almost unique. What comes closest and not other luxury brands? So outside of luxury, what companies that you've ever investigated, however big or small, have a sustainable competitive position that has shades of Hermes just to like orient people in company space? Is there anything else that comes to mind? The one that immediately pops into mind is Ferrari, but that's luxury. (laughs) It is luxury. I know. I was kind of trying for a free pass there. Let's try. It's also a horse company.
0: (laughs) Just invest in horses, man. That's the lesson. Maybe some. I've got a couple of medical device companies. We've been long-term investors in Intuitive Surgical, and there's been tons of people who've tried to compete over the years. But the whole ecosystem they have, and then years and years of operating, and I think they started in Vietnam and the kind of military hospitals and using robots to some know-how and some, that's about a 50-year competitive advantage periods. Maybe some sports franchises, jumping. So I'm big into my soccer, as I said earlier, Man United fan. And you look at what people are saying Man United might go for. This for sale, the Glazers have been much more commercial owners, taking a lot of money out. But that brand, we've sucked for 10 years. We've not come near the title since Alex Ferguson retired but that brand is indestructible still globally. It's kind of up there. And that, it's that uniqueness and its heritage. It's got 20 English titles. It's got the Busby Babes. It's got David Beckham, George Best, Cantona. There's several people listening to this who aren't Man United fans will say he's talking a load of crap. Liverpool is strong. and But there's probably about 20 global sporting franchises that might come close. And I
1: think they do share some of the attributes, but it's fascinatingly unique. There's this line I think about all the time attributed to Bill Gates back in the 90s, which is that supply is the killer of value. As you've discussed, I, Hermes, I just keep thinking about that line. You can't introduce new supply of this heritage in this story. You can't introduce new supply of so many aspects of it. They've themselves metered out supply to be 7 or 8% growth per year. When you really back up from all this, you mentioned the high-level economics of the business. But if you look at just, the shareholder returns over the last 30 years it's absolutely crushed global indexes i mean i think it's something like 7 to 10x for the s&p and like 40x for hermes that brings us to today though so it would have been great to earn that return historically it trades at a very high price to earnings multiple how do you think about valuation in a business like this i mean obviously like markets are smart the business is obviously exceptionally high quality cash flow machine but how do you think about price? Because return can either come from fundamental growth, you said maybe it'll double in the next decade, or from multiple change, and the multiples high. So it could get higher. But how do you think about those two sources of return for a business like this looking forward? That's literally
0: the billion dollar question. So the first starting point would be for 20 years, we've debated the valuation. i have been the kind of curmudgeonly guy in the corridor saying, you can't put a price on something that can grow forever. But let's do the DCF work out on your spreadsheet, there is two elements to me. So the first one is coming back to that intangible brand. What is this brand worth? And in terms of trying to put a valuation on that, I think the value of a long-term growth opportunity is consistently undervalued in the sense that you're quite right, say near-term PE on this is high, the price to cash flow, the price to sales They're high. There's no doubt. I think currently we're in sort of 50 times forecast. When we first bought it, that was about 35 times. So just for some context, there has been a relatively modest re-rating. So most of that has come through compound growth. I do think that this is, as I survey my portfolio and you put confidence intervals on which company will be around in 2050 to really push the envelope out, this would be number one. This would be the top of my list that this company will be here. Now the secondary question would be: okay, well, that's okay, but what size could it be? And can plausibly grow another 10%? Hang on, you're starting to get into the hundred billions of euros quite quickly. Is that plausible? That's one of the debates we're having. The second one, uh, this is probably more short-term tactical, but what sort of business? Do I want to own as a long-term investor at the moment, uh, the premium that I'll pay for certainty or near certainty of all my businesses, this feels one of the most predictable. I think you're absolutely right. I think the market is more appreciating that. So this is not the largest holding of my portfolio, but it's a reasonably sized holding and it feels a really solid base. While I try to compute all of the stuff that's going on, on what's happening with growth elsewhere and... There's so much changing elsewhere that this is almost a beacon of, okay, I'm not going to say I'm going to park money here, but it feels to me as if the fundamentals aren't changing. We haven't addressed the fact that this is actually one of the best inflation hedges. The pricing power that these guys have historically, they've gone up mid single digits. Last year, they put prices up double digits. So, yes, some input price, but they just pass. No one cares. They just pass it on. There's a live debate for us. Internally, on I would say size of holding, and I will fight tooth and nail to still own some of this with my sort of younger, trendier colleagues. I do just think there's something special about a business that I can pretty much say today to my clients, this company will be around doing the same thing in 10, 20, 30 years' time. There's not many of those, and it's really easy to say, well, that's all priced in, but if you're just patient and if it can grow. What if margins get to 45 or 50%? What if actually we've not seen anything yet from the Middle East, or we've not explored tier three to six China, or actually Denver and Kansas City are huge growth markets? There could be lots of other legs of growth here. It's always
1: been a debate about valuation. To me, it's worth it. There's the famous apocryphal story about Tim Cook flying to see Warren Buffett or someone at Berkshire before Berkshire started really aggressively buying Apple when he basically said, look, we're going to return excess capital through buybacks and dividends to shareholders, not fund some big moonshot thing or not stray from what made us us. And obviously, that's been an incredible investment story for Buffett. Maybe just say a closing word on capital allocation of this business, which sounds very simple. Like you said, they've never really done anything. So haven't been big acquisitions, haven't been big sales. It's not goodwill. There are unintangibles, intangibles. But good capital allocation is always important in long-term stories. Maybe just say a word on how they've chosen to allocate excess capital and what they've done with it. I think on capital allocation, very conservative. There's an argument that there's too much cash on the balance
0: sheet. So the dividend is consistent. It's by no means a great shake. I think the current yield is about half a percent. It could be substantially higher. What they have done is been very disciplined over the years on not investing in the business and not straying too far away. They had a dalliance of trying to fund a new brand in China, which probably dates back about 15 years ago. That hasn't really worked, which is interesting. They actually sold down last year to become a minority shareholder in that. It was called Shangmia, and it was backing a young Chinese designer. Very beautiful. Comes back to that. Conversation we were having about Oriental artisanship, really nice, beautiful items. But even within the Chinese market, it's a niche. It's never really grown. And I think they've decided that's not the case. So they're very different from the rest of the industry. So some people say it's a really inefficient balance sheet. I think it just reflects they are very safe, very good guardians. They've made a couple of specials over the years but nothing flash. Well, the handbags are obviously quite flash, but there's nothing flash about the way they run the business. I am sure that part of their DNA is they think we're stewarding this business. We are owners, but we're stewards for future generations. And that transfer of family
1: wealth is so intrinsic to the DNA. It's so interesting to me that in an era that's mostly been dominated by technology companies or companies where the product experiences a high rate of change, that There's a business like this and others that is in so many ways incredibly simple and unchanging. And yet it was $170 billion company or whatever it is today. If you think about this business now holistically, I'd love to close with one of our favorite questions to ask people, which is in all the time you've spent with this business, if you were to pull out one lesson for operators and one lesson for investors that this business has most taught you, what would those two lessons be in closing?
0: I would say that the operators, we spend a lot of time trying to answer the question, what's the culture of this business? And I want people that are aligned to my long-term timeframe. And it's got harder and harder over the years because every company kind of- Plays that game. Yeah, they play that game. And you know they got highly polished IR guys going blah, blah, blah. And literally, I no longer read the quarterly transcript. I like my younger colleagues read them. I just find they suck the energy out of me because it's so short term. And as I referenced earlier, Hermes, they're very different. They're almost like works of art themselves, the quarterly, They have to release them under French stock exchange. It is that DNA of the action speaking louder than the words of show me that you're long term by taking these, by choosing all the choices you take, all of those little things that add up to that extraordinary brand and that competitive advantage, that's really, really important. So when we first invest in a new company, our style is quite concentrated, quite large holdings will pop up on the shareholder list. And IR, will. we've normally talked to them before we've invested, obviously, and they'll reach out, hey, you guys, you want a quarterly call? And we're like, no, we're good. We'd love to talk about the next 10 years. And like, oh, Okay next quarter, hey, you guys, you want a quarterly call? And I would say it takes about 18 months. And then they realize, actually, they really don't want a quarterly call. That's just our style. But with Hermes, that was never the case. It was always, yeah, we'd love to talk about 2030 and 2035. It's that intangible actions. And then for investors, I think it's that previous conversation we were having. It's about how do you value longevity? If you are a growth investor, and one of the things I think I've learned more in the last two, three years of the best thing that I had in the previous 20 in terms of what's happened, the pandemic and valuations and exogenous shocks, the value of longevity and near certainty. I'm, I'm not going to say certainty because nothing is certain. That's definitely what the world has taught us. But there is a huge value in me being able to say to you or to my clients, this business is going to be around in X years at my confidence interval that it can grow at this rate. There's been this extraordinary period, as you alluded to, of these technology businesses just absolutely exploding, going to huge verticals. But as I look back on that now, almost growing a little bit too fast and kind of sucking so much growth that it's made it harder now at this scale. And everyone's looking for the second act in a lot of these businesses. And Amazon did it with AWS. Meta hasn't really done it. But the beauty of this business is it doesn't need a second act. The first act is 185 years old, and it's still the same act. It's still doing well. I think as investors, because we're all drawn so much, you try to train yourself to get off the hamster wheel, but it's so hard in our world not to be influenced by the next six months, the next 12 months that beauty of really trying to push out your time frame to 10 and 20 years and think, what what business will be around and flourishing then? Which is really hard. Your podcasts are always really dealing with that question, I guess, of what makes those businesses, these great franchises and these great businesses. But it's almost getting out of your comfort zone of, okay, I can predict this in the next 12, 18 months. It's sort of saying, here's a business, look at the growth rate, If I have a high confidence level that this can last, that's extremely valuable. My colleagues who will listen to this will say, here he goes again.
1: Heard this one before, but I do think it's really important. Well, Mark, this has been just an awesome exploration of a really simple but fascinating business for all the reasons that you've laid out. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Really, really enjoyed it.
0: Maybe one day we'll meet in a Hermes store and both look sort of quite silly together.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a a date. (laughs) Okay, awesome.